0: Let me take a sip of my coffee. Did a grocery store pickup this morning, and I will say I'm officially a basic bitch. I got some pumpkin spice to go on the coffee that I'm drinking right now. I am so disappointed in you. I'm not sorry. So disappointed. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan and I'm here with my co-host Milana.
1: Hey guys, you're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. Today we're going to learn about the first two women Indian doctors and about an artist in Mexico who out Frida Kahlo, Frida Kahlo. I don't understand how you can out Frida Kahlo, Frida Kahlo, but... Well, you're going to find out. I'm sure you'll tell us.
0: (laughs) I'm very concerned. <laughs> now, if we're covering India's, like, first female doctors, are we are we going back in time today? Because I'm okay with that. 2020 is just a little shit right now.
1: Mm. We're recording this the day after we learned about the passing of Our
0: Lady Justice,
1: Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And we're not in a good place.
0: So, yeah. So, I'm okay with some potentially escapist material today. Because 2020 is just fucking... It's not going too hot so far. Nope. So far. It's it's September. <laughs> I, oh, my God.
1: I, uh, okay. No, we are going back in time.
0: Are we, like, really going back in time, or are we only kind of depressingly going a little bit back in time? Both. Okay. I have questions. I have answers.
1: Seven pages worth of answers. <laughs> I'm so sorry. There's just a lot. So let me, let me, let me pull up the good shit and we'll go from there. Yeah. We're, uh, we're going to India and we're going to dive right in, but not too deep because trying to cram the history of India and its feminist movements is not something I am an expert on, nor do we have the time. I've got enough to paint a mental sketch for you. Not a full paint, painting, but,
0: uh, just a sketch. Okay. well yeah it's like a seven page sketch enough for us to get the idea that's that's what we aim for you know some context i feel like on the occasions that i've covered artists from different cultures easily half of the research time is just doing contextual research to understand what's happening yeah like what's going on and, and the implications of it because there have been so many things i've come across and i'm like wow i definitely didn't learn that in high school nope yep no, I definitely had to suddenly learn about India's everything. Don't worry, on my end, we've got the Mexican Revolution coming up. Oh, good. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're going back
1: in time. And we're specifically going to focus on the first two female doctors in India. And I'm going to talk about them both because their timelines coincide. So, the first... First name we're gonna learn is Karambini Ganguly. She was born July eighteenth, eighteen sixty-one in Bhagapur, British India. So it's B-H-A-G-A-L-P-U-R. So that is like in the northeast portion of India, closer to the border between India and Bangladesh. And I don't have a lot of personal anecdotes about her. However, I have a wealth of information and quotes for our next lady, whose name was Anandin by Gopal Rao Joshi. Okay. She was born March 31st, 1865. Okay. So there's only about a four-year difference. Yeah. So she was born March 31st, 1865 in Kalyan, India. So yeah, same timeline. There's like a four-year four, four year difference. So Kalyan is on the west coast of India, so on the other side of India. They were both born in the Brahmin caste. So real quick, India operates on a caste system. What do you know about their caste system?
0: Um social and economic hierarchy but that's that's all i got and the untouchables are at the bottom that is all i know oh yeah so
1: it is a hereditary social hierarchy the modern day casteism is said to stem from ancient hinduism that describes and delineates four major social classes called varnas this system has been around for like 2,000 years, and up until India was colonized, the Varna system actually wasn't super strictly adhered to. The colonies had the system written into their laws. And for me, this is just speculation on my part, but I'm assuming it was written into their laws to guarantee that certain kinds of people stayed at the top and certain other kinds of people stayed at the bottom.
0: And you said that that was upon the British coming in and colonizing? Mm -hmm, Yeah. Okay. They took their tradition and was like, We're
1: going to work this in. They're like, we can use this to our advantage. Exactly, yeah. So, the colonization of India started in the 1490s, and the United Kingdom reigned supreme until India declared its independence on August 15th, 1947. So, if you look at a timeline, the caste system had about 550 years to sink into the Indian way of life. Mm Mm-hmm. So, back to the caste system. From the top of the pyramid to the bottom, Brahmins, who are priests and academics... Uh, Kshatriya, which are warriors and kings, Vaishyas, uh, merchants and landowners, and Sudras, commoners and servants, and then the Intangibles. And on every single diagram of the caste system that I saw, this portion of people was physically removed from the pyramid and was held as an isolated rectangle under the pyramid. Whoa. Yeah, completely removed from the fucking pyramid, Megan.
0: They don't even (laughs) include them on... Mm-mm. The diagram. Okay, the graphics of it. Wow. Yeah.
1: Two main examples of the untouchable class were, uh, like, literally, I kept seeing these words, street sweepers and latrine cleaners. And these people are still routinely kept from schools and temples. Today, they are so low on the totem pole that it has been said that a few untouchables were punished for allowing their shadows to fall on someone of a higher caste than them.
0: Mm.
1: So, currently... It's technically no longer illegal to discriminate against different castes, but I imagine it's something like, if you're black in America and you decide to go to West Virginia for some reason, you're probably screwed. Like, there's a solid 60% difference in pay between castes today. Oh, Ugh. Oh, yeah. It's bad. And while I have no idea how people can tell who is from what system, like, I... Albeit briefly looked into it, genetics can be so funny that people can't look at a person's physical characteristics and know 100% exactly what caste they belong to. So I truly don't know how they differentiate whose shadow is dirty and whose shadow isn't. So I don't know, man. But all I do know is that both of our ladies were born in Brahmin families, the highest caste. But that's about where the similarities kind of stopped. Because while they were born in the same caste system, they grew up in completely different parts of India and were influenced by two completely different religions. So, we don't know a lot about Kanambini Ganguly's life, like I said, but um, her dad was a headmaster of Bhagampur school and also started the movement.
0: Was she the one born in 1861 or 1865? 1861. Okay, so she's the oldest between the two. All right.
1: Yes. Yeah, her dad was a headmaster of Begalpur school and also started the movement with a dude named Abhay Sharon Malik for women's em- emancipation in the city of Begalpur And they even started a women's organization in 1863. So we're at a good starting point there. She was Christian, and while she was Indian and kept to some Indian culture, she was the kind of woman who wore some Western clothes and got an education. So... That was a bit much in the 1880s or 18, yeah, when she was going to school in the 1880s. So the feminism movement in India started with men. Okay. I I mean, it's not, it, it, honestly, I'm going to just say it, it wasn't that effective because, like, just looking at the pay gap alone, you know how I was telling you that the caste systems with each class, you're paid 60% less. There's, like, a gap between those castes. Mm-hmm. Women have a gap for men that's about I believe 64%. Okay. So if you're like a sudra and you are a sudra woman, you're getting paid shit.
0: Okay, and is that the or the untouchable class? Oh,
1: no, that's the one right above that. Okay. That's the one right above that. Yeah, that's like the um, So that's the
0: third level, laborers. Yeah. No, it's the it's the fourth level. Okay, so there's five levels in total. Yeah. Okay.
1: Just saying that, like, if you're already in a lower caste and then Mm -hmm. you're also a woman, you are it's not just a 60% difference, it's a 124% difference. Yeah. You know what I Mm -hmm. mean? Uh, (laughs) It's it's not fun. But they're getting paid pennies, essentially. What I like about her dad is that he actually seemed to care enough and he got her educated, which is a huge deal. And when she went to college, there was no ifs, ands, or buts. She went and it was great. She had to do a college called Bethune School at the University of Calcutta. Mm-hmm. She graduated in 1883 with, a, with another woman named Chandramukhi Basu. And they are both now first graduates of Bethune College and also the first female graduates in the country.
0: Okay, so that was going to be my next question: is that here in the United States, for a woman to want to pursue higher education in the late 1800s was. Very difficult. So I was just wondering how that translated to India during that same period. yeah,
1: I mean, I'm going to say that if she wasn't in the Brahmin caste, she wouldn't have made it.
0: okay. So it's just a matter of their their power and who they know knew essentially,
1: yeah, okay, but it was it was pretty bad because she was the first woman, like one of two first lady graduates mm-hmm. in the entire country. So <laughs> yeah, no, it it's hard. They're, these two women, they like jump some hurdles. So, her friend, Shandramuki, became uh, an educator. And Karambini was like, I'm going to go to medical school. So, she enters Calcutta, Calcutta Medical School. And that's really fucking weird <laughs> to most people. They're like, wait, what? are you serious? But she got in. And then that same year, she did something also kind of weird, which was she married a 39-year-old widower named Dwarganith Ganguli. And took on the responsibility of his six motherless children. On top of going to medical school? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know, right? Like, what? (laughs) Who is this woman? (laughs) So apparently, if you marry a widow, it's bad luck. I saw so much on the internet about how widowed women were considered bad luck and how no one would marry one because they had already been touched and you were doomed to have a failed marriage or even die yourself and i could not find why marrying a widowed man was a big deal like i didn't it didn't show up on any of my research but what i got from the paper that i was reading is that people in the community were not happy still that she was marrying a widower so i'm not really sure what aspect of a man being widowed is not a good idea but um like they just couldn't get their head around it so what now now she's married to someone who's 39 and widowed and has six children Mm -hmm. and is also going to medical school. Like, they're getting flack. Okay. So even though he was a widow, fun fact, shocker here, he was also a loving, supporting husband, which is actually a shocker because that was apparently rare in the 1800s. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So he was, like, there for her and supported her, and she understood the fortune she had, and she went on to do it all. And I mean all. So she graduated medical school, became a doctor for women, campaigned for women's rights, raised the six kids and two of her own biological ones. So she was a mother of eight, took care of the house, and was even a master of needle and lace work.
0: I wonder if she felt she had to, like, hyper accentuate traditional feminine aspects of herself in order to be more socially accepted for kind of breaking through other more gender stiff um, roles. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because, I mean, she pushed herself to be superwoman, and I Mm -hmm. imagine it was the pressure of her dealing with people looking down on her because, like, what kind of woman gets educated and goes to medical school, right? Mm -hmm. She had a well-established practice. She focused on women's health and pregnancy. Some of her patients were even in the Nepalese royal family. So one of those individuals actually gifted her and her children a damn pony.
0: What? (laughs) I I don't know.
1: I know. I was like, okay, well, I didn't know that that was a gift that you just gave people, but now she's got a fucking pony. And then there was her time on Indian National Congress, which is the left-leaning political party in India that started in 1885, and it's still one of the two prevailing political parties in India today. Mm -hmm. So around that time, her husband had pushed for more female representation in the party, and this resulted in her and five other women finding their way into a delegation at several of the National Congress's meetings. And she would go about her 62 years of life practicing medicine as the first woman in India to become a practicing doctor. This was apparently a lot for people to handle. So much so that a writer for the Indian messenger Mahesh Chandra Paul had launched a slander campaign against her. She was so powerful and intelligent, Megan. Like... He was feeling threatened because women aren't supposed to be that way. They, they're they not supposed to be successful. Yeah. And he indirectly, but not so indirectly, called her a whore. Yeah. Like, wrote it. Wrote it in. And her husband sees this and loses his shit and takes Mahesh to court. Oh, nice. Yeah. Like, right? This, this husband is so sweet. And this is such, like, this is so nice and so heartwarming because... We're about to hear some other stuff that's not so heartwarming, mm. and it's, yeah, it's great. But Mahesh spends six months in prison and has to pay a $100 ruby fine.
0: The writer of the slanderous material. hmm yeah. Oh, nice. They actually
1: got him jailed. Okay, great. I know. It's great. I love her life. But yeah, even in the most liberal areas of India, a woman like Kadambini was considered a threat to traditional female genre roles and the entire Indian way of life. So you can only imagine... What it was like for our next lady, who was a woman raised by a very orthodox Hindu family. As I mentioned before, their influences differed greatly, but this next bit is going to get kind of confusing. So, there were some points where the family wasn't too orthodox. So, dad loved her, had her educated at home, would boast to his friends about how she could actually read because women weren't supposed to read. Yeah. This is probably great because mom wanted nothing to do with her. There there was actually a quote she said um, that was, quote, My mother never spoke to me affectionately. Truly, she never understood the duties of a mother, nor did I experience the love which a child naturally feels for its mother. So that's apparently a role reversal because, like, the dad is supposed to not give a shit, apparently, in traditional
0: Hindu families. And the mom is supposed to be affectionate, from what I understand. Mm. I know within the same time period within Victorian Western families, parents were taught not to really show affection for their children. That was mm-hmm. seen as over-coddling them. And so the type of child raising that happened in the late 1800s is just drastically different from what right. you know we consider normal today. But
1: I think the fact that she even knew that it wasn't, like, the same as her other friends, like, Mm -hmm. it was in the 1800s and she was still like, yeah, she didn't know how to be a mom, you know? I mean, maybe she didn't want to be a mom. I know that's probably part of it, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> and whether they reversed roles for all four of their surviving children or just here or just her, I have no mm-hmm. idea. But there are originally nine of them. They died young. The ones that did die, died young or at childbirth, which is not uncommon for the women and children of India in the late mm-hmm. 1800s. And this is... Actually, why both women chose to become doctors, but we're going to get into that in a second because we're going back to her her orthodox part of her life. Okay. So, for example, Anandabai was married off at the age of nine. <sighs> yeah. To a man who was 20 years older than her, and then she was renamed.
0: Not her last name, Megan. Her first name. Like a whole new identity, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's a, a way of showing your property. Mm-hmm. This is apparently a thing that
1: traditionally supposed to happen and I did not know this. I was very angry when I read this. Oh okay so her given name, the name she was born with was Yamuna and her husband renamed her Anandabai. okay so she gets pregnant by the age of 13. Ugh. Ten days after she gives birth, she loses her infant son due to lack of sufficient medical care. okay. She's devastated and is then moved to become a doctor.
0: God, I'm like, to be 13.
1: I know. I know. Like, it was, oh, yeah. Yep. So, pros of childhood marriage, none. Cons, a lot. So the first one, she's a child and consent is a thing. Two, early marriage doesn't allow a child to be a child. In fact, it doesn't allow her, number three, to be a human. Child brides are more of an object owned by their husband. Yeah. Or the big one, is the psychological and medical effects of sexual intercourse and childbearing while you're a child are astronomically detrimental. Her health declined big time. She was proven barren after she lost her son, and she was not the only one. So, the thing is that women's health and medical care did not exist. There was maybe a midwife who was also your aunt, and you either made it through or you didn't. You didn't get the medicine, nutrition, or care you needed through your entire pregnancy. And as we touched on before in early episodes, infants need round-the-clock medical care to make sure they make it to a viable survival point. So this did not happen. Also, Hindu women were not going to go to men about their medical needs because that was the business of ladies. Like, they couldn't bother the men with that. So women would just Mm -hmm. rather keep their mouths shut and be violently ill before asking for help. Okay. Even today, sure, doctors exist, but there's a major taboo around periods. Women aren't allowed in public while they're menstruating today. I came across a BBC article written last, last year, Megan, titled, Why are menstruating women in India
0: removing their wombs? Oh, okay. Today. <laughs> like, My very limited understanding is that it varies drastically depending on what region you're in. Yes. In terms of how these traditions are maintained and received, everything from, you know, like a period taboo to honor killings. Yeah. Yeah. No, it definitely is like,
1: because it's so rural. It's such a big country. Yeah. From what I understand, like, the percentage of people in India who are okay with talking about menstruation, eh, very, very, very low. Like... Okay. It's so bad that even in cities, there was one article that I came across that was like, um, there's this uh, YouTube channel called Feminism in India. And there was like one that was like, things you missed during, uh, like, it was like a a weekly update. And I think this was two months ago. They were like, this particular company is allowing menstruation leave because, you know, it's a medical need and there's still a huge taboo in the country. And this was like two months ago. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like, to combat this, like this taboo. It's crazy. Like it was in like a big city, and like they're they're combating that by giving these women the opportunity to stay home and deal with the pain that
0: they're they're dealing with. I mean, to be fair, we don't quite have something like that widespread within the United States. No. I mean, if you're lucky enough to have paid benefits, you could take a sick day, but no, we don't usually frame it in terms of a menstruation day.
1: No. So the, I thought that was cool, but like it, it's still very much a there's like a whole portion of their channel that's devoted to how women look at their bodies and what happens with mm-hmm. them. And it's a lot of don't be scared. Don't, you're not impure. Like, it's just kind of weird to watch. Anyway, an Dubai saw this and wanted to do something about it. And this is lucky because this hope of becoming a doctor aligned very nicely with her husband's plans for her. Okay. Oh, yeah. Let me explain. So this dude, right? His name is Gopal Rao. And I'm not going to go, it's just Gopal Rao. I'm going to call him Gopal. I guess he also grew up with an orthodox Hindu background, but he had the freedom to have his own opinions, and he seemed to align himself with feminism and progressive views. So this is not the way that Bini's husband aligned himself with
0: being a supportive husband. At all. Okay. All right. I mean, you're still taking a child bribe, but okay. All right. I, all right. Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. There are so many things wrong with the way that he treated her. He only married her with the agreement that he be allowed to continue educating her after marriage because he was so progressive, which is something that a Hindu husband typically wants from his or doesn't typically want from his wife, right? So Mm -hmm. he was a self-proclaimed feminist who still took a child bride and fucked her at the age of 13, And he wanted his wife to be educated and to become successful. But honestly, he was one of those guys that does something just to get attention, and educating his child bride was how he got that attention. Okay. Yeah. So to get that rise, he would enroll her in schools. Uh, He would take her out on walks in public, which you didn't do. It was, like, unheard of. They got a lot of backlash for that, but there... We're definitely some underlying selfish needs of getting your rise out of the general public, and that rise gets so bad that they have to move to an area of India that isn't as conservative as the space that they were in. And when they were at home, it was expected that she studied hard. He once beat her for making dinner instead of studying. That's wild. Okay. I know. I, that yeah.
0: is... Usually it's the other way around. The other way
1: around. Yeah. Okay. I don't understand He was very controlling about her life and where it was headed, and it's because of this controlling aspect that people against the idea of feminism would align themselves with what was happening. So Anna Debye was written in history books to look like a good, subservient wife to her husband's desires, as if she only became a doctor for him. Mm. Yeah. So 1878, she was 16, 15, 16, approaching college age there, because I guess she was moving quickly. And her husband was reaching out to different universities to see who would agree to allow her into medical school. So mm-hmm. one of them was Princeton. He reached out to the faculty there talking about how he wanted to reform to Christianity and wanted to get his wife an education. And would they please take his cast estranged progressive couple and allow her to study and some sob story, right? Okay. And they said, No. Stay strong in Christ. Amen. Princeton? Princeton (laughs) University. That wasn't, like, a direct quote. It was, like, stay in India, reform, love Christ. All right. Cast away your Hinduism.
0: Well, also, America, in the 1880s, in terms of racial diversity, we were just not doing too hot. Nope. No. Yeah. So I imagine when they got correspondence, and you're like... I think um yeah, nope, pretty sure they're brown. Sorry. So <laughs> there was there was
1: one guy who was like, Oh my god Literally was like we can we can save these people. He loved the idea of like
0: a white savior com- complex, like real hard. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And the the guy above him was like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> nah. <laughs> so yeah, that was disappointing, I guess. And the husband's sad, Gopal, and he starts writing to other universities with, like, he's not getting much headway. Mm -hmm. Um, But 1890, a woman at Princeton named B.F. Carpenter comes across this letter and goes out of her way to reach out to Ann and Dubai. And she expressed her support for her. And then this crazy, awesome correspondence happened between Ann and Dubai and Mrs. Carpenter. They became pen pals, and then eventually they were so close that Anandabai once wrote to her to compare her to an aunt. And that's a big deal because there's a saying in India that, quote, it does not matter much if a mother dies, but let not an aunt die.
0: Oh, okay. I feel like... I'm missing a lot with that saying, but okay. Yeah, like, I guess it's
1: just, like, because it's a strong connection compared to, like, what a mother is. But it might have something to do with the fact that, like, if you're forced into a pregnancy and into a marriage and then you have to, like, take care of these children, like, I don't know. I have a feeling you're more likely to resent your children than your sisters to resent your children.
0: Maybe it's along the lines of it's customary to go live with your husband's family and any of his sisters you become really close with.
1: Oh, that might be better. That might be better reasoning.
0: Or, yeah, or any, any women in his family become a network. Especially, I mean, can you imagine being nine years old and you have to go live with essentially the stranger? Yep. I, I mean, especially if you're moving even to the next town over. It's just a sense of isolation that you're going to have. So I, I guess I can see from there where those ties might become really strong for that new network of females in your life. Oh, God. I know your face right now.
1: There's so much, so much baggage. Yeah. But they wrote back and forth to each other for a while. And those letters are so important, Megan, because they allow people to see the struggle that Anandabai was dealing with, not just publicly, but internally. Mm -hmm. So she explains to Mrs. Carpenter that she grew up Orthodox Hindu in the late 1800s, and the sense of nationalism in India even for today, it's kind of overwhelming, at least for her it was. So, they were talking about child marriage, and she was taught growing up that child marriage was something that the Western world just couldn't and wouldn't understand. And this was the way of life for her people, and that was something she was going to stand behind. Because, honestly, all kind. In her in her thoughts, all kinds of marriage in all parts of the world is a burden, and this was just the kind of burden she had to deal with, because this is how, what her people did. Hmm. But in the very next letter, Megan, she says that the destruction of child marriage would never happen because people in power with traditional values will always overpower the voices of the oppressed, but it was something that needed to be addressed and stopped because of the harm it did to the minds and bodies of the children. Mm -hmm. so keep in mind while she's writing these letters she's about 16 in a country that treated women like objects so she's this teenager that is just not finding herself in her own thoughts And she's just now questioning the roles of women in indian society but she never outright and offensively challenged traditional values there was always a safety net when she spoke in public about her desire for women's health and her own education she always wore her nine yard sari she was always letting the public know that even basically even as she's trying to find her way to the united states of her education she would not allow herself to be wooed by the western world and this is a huge deal because mrs carpenter was able to secure space for her at the women's medical college of pennsylvania here In good old Philadelphia. (laughs) But alone because finances. And by alone, I mean with a Christian missionary who is trying to convert her. Okay. Yeah. So she now had to defend, essentially, her choice to leave India without her husband, go to the United States with the company of a missionary whose sole purpose in life was to convert her to Christianity, and get educated in medicine to her community. So Mm
0: -hmm. this has
1: never happened, ever. And the community wanted answers, and she held a speech. At the age of 17.
0: What? Like almost like a town hall just to fill everyone in on what she was going to go about to do and why she was doing it? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It was that. It was that groundbreaking. Okay. They were like, what yeah.
1: is happening? We want answers. And she's like, okay, I'll give you my answers. At the age of 17. Mm-hmm. So her points were, one, women and babies are dying and we need doctors who know women's health. Two, we need to educate women here to become Indian doctors because the foreign ones don't know our way of life or our culture and will cross lines even though they're trying to help. And three, direct quote, in my humble opinion, there is a growing need for Hindu lady doctors in India and I volunteered to qualify myself for one. Okay. And that was it. And they were like, fine. I guess she'll be
0: okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, she gets on a boat to Philadelphia, arrives in 1883. There she's received by Mrs. Carpenter, and they finally get to
0: meet. Oh, that must have been really nice. It's so great. I, when I read that, I was like, oh, my God, yes. I was, like, crying. It was so emotional.
1: She lives with the dean of the college that she went to for three years with frequent visits for Mrs. Carpenter, and she's doing well academically. But the cold here in Philly may, you know it, it's no joke it's harsh. And med school is also harsh. So before she graduates, she contracts tuberculosis.
0: Oh no! Okay, I just want to say that there is no tuberculosis in my segment today. I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. We're not
1: done with this ride. She makes it through to graduation, but this sickness dogs her. So graduation happens, her husband quits his job, traveled cheaply to San Francisco, and then just worked his way from San Francisco to Philadelphia, get this, while doing anti-American speeches in America.
0: You know what? That is one of the most American things I've heard. (laughs) Welcome to the country. (laughs) I might not agree with you, but here you are. What year is this where all this is happening, Uh, where she's graduating and her husband's coming over the States?
1: 1886.
0: Okay. So she's clearly embarrassed.
1: Like, dude, these women are my friends and cared for me. But she doesn't say anything and her friends don't say anything. They're just like, who's this weird fucker? You know, like, what's happening? (laughs) And honestly, the dude had issues because reading about him just makes me think that he was bipolar. Okay. He has a lot of ups and downs. And even after her death, he was just making really erratic decisions. I imagine there was something to like, he he was off the fucking wall, Megan. <laughs>
0: like, mm. it
1: was bad. And I think she saw this because she had written to him while she was in Philadelphia. So it was a long letter, but some quotes from that. Quote, This letter has instances of psychological and physical abuse. So if you don't want to hear it, I would fast forward about 40 seconds from now. It is very difficult to decide whether your treatment of me was good or bad. It seems to have been right in view of its ultimate goal, but in fairness, one is compelled to admit that it was wrong, considering its possible effect on a child's mind. Hitting me with broken pieces of wood at the tender age of 10, flinging chairs and books at me, and threatening to leave me when I was 12 and inflicting other strange punishments on me when I was 14. All these were too severe for the age, body, and mind at each respective stage. And then her last line of it was, keeping in mind that she's on the other side of the world away from him, I do understand that without you, I would have never become what I am now. I was born to endure all that, but I am quite content now.
0: That's a very polite way of being like, you're an asshole, I'm sick of your shit, and I'm glad I'm literally halfway across the world from you. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So, she's his wife,
1: so she still belongs to him because she's still Hindu and could never leave him, so.
0: And at this point, she's, I mean, she's only in her early 20s. Yeah, she's been through a lot. That's a lot to go through. So after
1: graduation, she's still feeling the effects of tuberculosis, decides not to stay in the United States for clinicals, takes a position for a lady doctor in Kohapur back in India. And she and her husband were welcomed back warmly because she was this Indian woman who braved a journey to the westernized world and kept her nationalism and traditions intact. Mm-hmm. However, she did not get to practice. Her illness kicked up again, and she passed away on February 29th, 1887 from tuberculosis. Oh, no. She was 22.
0: Oh, oh man. Yeah. Was it the scientist you covered who developed a treatment for leprosy, Alice Ball, she was what? She was like 21, 22, and she passed away as well? 24, yeah. Yeah? Oh, my goodness. Too fucking young. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The happy part of this, though, is that her husband didn't keep her ashes. They sent them to Mrs. Carpenter, and she's buried in the family lot. And her tombstone says, "Dr. Ananda Bai Joshi, M.D."
0: That's really sweet, but I also have questions. What? <laughs> like, okay. like, did he like split the ashes, like halfsies, or did he like, was he like, no, you can have her, like, no, you can have her. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, it was not. But. At least he recognized the strength of their relationship and how much it would mean to his dead wife to like for that gesture. Yeah.
1: Like he's just such a weird dude. I can't. But she is technically the first Indian woman to obtain a medical degree from outside of India. And Okay. In most circles she's rewritten as an obedient wife and her accomplishments are seen only as a direct result of her husband's efforts and desires. Even more so The point is seen as driven home because of the fact that she died almost immediately after becoming a doctor and fulfilling her husband's wishes. However, both Anandavai and Kadambini's lives and work were able to set a precedent for lady doctors in India. They set groundwork for the need of women's overall and reproductive health, and they also paved the way for other Indian women to move
0: forward with their own education. I mean, even that right there. That is pretty groundbreaking to be the first graduating female class within the country. For sure. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. They both
1: basically paved the way, which is great. It really sucks that Anna Dubai had to go through what she did. I think she knew that what she was doing was important, and she knew the only way to get that done
0: was with her husband's help. You gotta play the game. Yeah. <sighs> That's why I insisted to go first, because it's sad. Gee, I'm really glad I don't have an artist that... Happens to die at a kind of younger age after being politically ostracized for her work and might have died in poverty. Oh. But, I mean, she had like a good few decades. That's good. Yeah.
1: The average age of my ladies was 40, so.
0: Well, <laughs> I'll have you know that today on my end, we make it all the way up to 53. Oh, shit. <laughs> Yeah. So we're not getting an artist that has lived forever, like some of my most recent ladies who just, you know, casually break a hundred. Oh god. (laughs) Yeah. We're back amongst mortals. Oh no. My artist, like I said, she lives to be a whole fifty-three. And today we're getting escapist. We are leaving the United States for our volume two of Let's Escape America. yeah. Yeah. And I think you're going to enjoy this because we're taking yet another trip abroad. And today we're just going to, oh, I don't know, the ancestral home of tequila. (gasps) Like not like just Mexico, but like tequila, Mexico, where tequila is from. Oh my God. I need tequila. Okay. We're we're not going to stay there because we're going to Mexico City later in the story, but I just thought you'd appreciate learning a little bit about the Mexico state of Jalisco. And that is where tequila comes from, along with mariachi music. Yeah, I'm
1: good without the mariachi music. But it's it's good because after this, I'm going to go make tacos
0: for me and my boys. So There you go. You can take this little piece of geographical information with you. Because at some point, we're going to have to do a pilgrimage out to Jalisco, Mexico. Yep. I'm sorry, we're in Mexico? Jalisco, Jalisco, can you just spell it? Yeah, I was about to say, you're, you're the Hispanic one between the two of us, so help a gringa out. Okay. J-A-L-I-S-C-O. And I, I will have you know, for a few of these things, I totally Googled pronunciation. I'm trying. It should be Jalisco. 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 <laughs> Antonio could be helping me out with these Spanish pronunciations. Is I Antonio the pig? And I am here to say that while
1: you're trying really hard... Marcila Gringa, and the pronunciation you were looking for is Jalisco,
0: Mexico. Gracias, Antonio. Gracias. continue <laughs> <De nada>, Continue. <laughs> forgive me, stained glass pig, that our audience only knew about last episode. <laughs> I hope you and the entirety of the Spanish-speaking world can forgive me. It is done. Thank you. <laughs> just, just so you know, there's a little bit more Spanish coming up in this episode, so you might need to help me out a little bit. I got you boo gracias <laughs> I feel like with Spanish, if you just say it faster, like it'll it'll help you kind of blunder through it.
1: no at go i maybe I don't know i to be fair the the Colombian dialect that my family has can be or at least on my dad's side is kind of fast
0: because he's from Cali, yeah, well, never mind the coastal Colombians. Oh, no, that's a whole different I'm like, sorry, Cartagena, what? What?
1: I know. When we were there, I was like, I don't understand anything you're saying, but that is tasty. Please give to me. Dos,
0: por favor. (laughs) But yeah, we are going to Jalisco. 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 So there we've got tequila. We've got mariachi music. And we have our featured artist, Maria Izquierdo, also coming from there. Izquierdo? Izquierdo. I practice. He gave me a little flack last episode for my Francois, who was actually secretly (laughs) named Frank, and I double-checked myself, and if anything, I just had a slightly subtle different pronunciation for, it should be like, Francois, and I was like, Francois. Now, yes, I just said it the same damn way, but I was still technically Frank in the right place. I had a little bit more of a Q sound when it's actually a little bit more of a C, so I will have you know that I listened over and over and over again to someone much more knowledgeable than me say, Maria Izquierdo. That's very close. Yes. And it's also really confusing because there's someone of that same name who was running for Boston School District a few years ago. And I was like, YouTube, this is, I don't want to listen to an hour and a half panel discussion for a board of directors for the education system of Boston. Thank you. Yeah. That was a little side detour. I was like, I'm not going down that way. <laughs> oh no, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. So today for Maria, just like with your first doctor that you covered, on my end, biographical information is a little light. Oh no. But, well, I think it's only that way because the majority of the literature on her is in Spanish. And I feel like there's more information out her that just has not come into English critical dialogue about her. So even though biographical information is kind of light, I am still going to dish on the woman that some historians have said, out, Frida collared, Frida Kahlo. I am very interested in the explanation for that. Yeah. Well, as one writer put it, quote, Maria Izquierdo represented Mexicanness. Better than Frida Kahlo, not in her folklore, but in her essence. In her what? In her essence. Oh, okay. Which is, like, super impressive because everyone knows Frida and, like, I had no idea who Maria was.
1: I don't know who she is. What kind of work did she do again? I'm sorry.
0: She's she's a painter. Okay. And it's kind of wild because they lived at pretty much the same time. Like, they were born and they both died just within a few years of one another. Oh, oh, God. Yeah, so I feel like how you did a comparison between two doctors, I probably could have totally done that today between these two artists, but... Then it would have been really long. <laughs> we could have split it up. But just like your husband, or rather reluctant, to do Madame Curie... Yeah, you don't want to
1: do Frida Kahlo.
0: Like, every everyone knows who she is. Yeah, I get it. Like so, a lo- Same thing with Georgia O'Keeffe. Yeah. It's not that they're not interesting and they, they haven't done great things, it's just... Those two women in particular tend to be the only two women artists that people can name.
1: Let me see. Who else would I have been able to name before Before we started? I couldn't tell you. And I feel really
0: bad. No, the same. It made me think about it on your end. Like, I, I would just say Madame Curie. And then I, I tend to be terrible with names. But I know there's a woman who was really significant in the invention of CRISPR. <laughs> that name I can't remember? Jennifer Doudna. She's the co-inventor of CRISPR, which is a gene editing device. So I'm, I'm just covering Maria today. There's enough to be said about her. So we've got her fill. So we're starting out in 1902 in the Mexican state where we are going to make our pilgrimage to Jalisco. And that's an area on the west coast, centrally located kind of in the middle of Mexico. And there's not much known about Maria's family. So I know she was born into a lower middle class family. I know they were of Native Mexican and Spanish heritage. Mm -hmm. I think her dad died when she was young, maybe about five or so. But in terms of what her family was like and what her earlier years were like, I've got, like, no info.
1: Mm.
0: But when she was 14 in 1916, her family set up an arranged marriage to a much older military man. Oh, no.
1: I was hoping there wasn't an arranged marriage on your end. You know what? We, like, we really synced up. Yeah we did.
0: This <laughs> yeah. Are you are you kind on your period too? Because like I'm totally about to I'm hit mine. I'm actually just about to get off of it. I'm like weaning off now. Oh
1: well. Yeah. No, we're definitely thinking up. Yeah. I'm bleeding right now. Yeah, yeah. Yep.
0: Totally. All right. <laughs> up. Never mind the fact that we are over two hundred miles apart. <laughs> That's how strong our bond is.
1: Oh, you can't break it ever. It's
0: beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You should know that Like when I'm deeply craving chocolate, I'm like, oh, Milena needs some tequila right now. <laughs> I think we both need a heating pad, too. Oh oh. I should text her and tell her I love her. <laughs> I haven't done that in a few hours. <laughs> that's real love because we're best friends (laughs) oh my goodness so i unfortunately i don't know who maria's best friend was oh no yeah it's kind of a bummer Uh, i know her new military husband was not her best friend i part of what you described with the immense change that happens being thrust into a relationship like that at a young age i imagine maria was going through as well Mm -hmm. i know that by the time she was 17 she had three kids oh no yeah by the time she's 21 it's 1963 and her husband or three kids they move out to mexico city and by today's standards that's close to a seven hour road trip oh so that's a that's a big move to be undertaking in the 1920s yeah
1: that's not it's not a game to play
0: no it's not like you're just going a few towns over or even the next state over they road tripped <laughs> probably at least a day maybe two days journey especially with little kids all the way to mexico city which is more central in the country now one contributing factor to their decision to move was most likely the mexican revolution hold on i know your face says it all i think that is one thing we can safely add to the list of shit we didn't learn about in public school. Nope. Please tell me, when did it yeah. happen and how did it happen, but in two sentences. That's what I'm going to do. So, revolution took place between 1910 and 1920, and it was the first major revolution of the 20th century. So, consider it an appetizer for World War II and World War – well, World War I and World War II. And then you're like the Cold War and then like the Chinese Cultural Revolution and like Mexico started it off in 1910. Oh, goody. Yeah. Basically, there was a minority of Spanish descendants who owned everything. Oh, okay. And despite the constitution, their leader was like, yeah, okay, cool, I'm totally a dictator, deal with it. Bastards. And it it was a feudal system, that was how things were run, and two guys emerged being like, yeah, fuck that, and after 10 years of fighting, Mexico emerged as a democracy. All right. Their whole emphasis at that point, they were really emphasized being an egalitarian society. Okay. And Maria benefited from this because, I mean, that's a really big cultural and political shift, and that was happening as she was growing up. So by her late teens, early 20s, the war has come to an end, and suddenly she's living in the largest city in the nation, and Maria has options.
1: <gasps>
0: and one of the options Maria considers is to enroll in art school. Check. And divorce her husband. Check. Fuck yeah. She's like, I might be a single mother with three kids, but you know what? That's better than being with you. Goodbye. That's amazing.
1: Good for her. Fuck yeah. Queen! Sorry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Even with the progressive post-revolutionary attitudes, there was still stigma in being a single mom in Mexico in the 1920s. Right. Because of the Catholic background, essentially. Yes. Yeah, you, if yeah. you're Catholic, you don't divorce. That, that was an aspect of it. Also, you know, the culture of machismo. Machismo. That was not Antonio. That was me. <laughs> and that's, that's the idea within Hispanic cultures of essentially, you know, men are men and women are women. And women are traditionally expected to stay home and raise the kids and let the men take care of everything. Oh, I'm so glad I'm not your traditional Spanish woman. I mean, like things have changed since you know a hundred years ago. Uh, yeah, but the
1: like the way that my
0: those expectations are still
1: yeah like,
0: implied and still culturally present.
1: The expectations my grandmother had for my mother and for me did not happen. Thankfully, yes,
0: yeah, and like you mentioned with the Catholic Church, like gender roles were an extension of that as well. I mean, Catholicism that was introduced to South and Central America in the early fifteen hundreds. Nice time to just just stew in Catholic guilt. Yeah, so they, they had a few centuries to really work that in. Yep. And for Maria, there's a lot of deeply ingrained cultural traditions that they do become a hindrance, like the things that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. But even with that baggage, Maria became one of the first professional women artists in Mexico. That's so yeah. cool. When was her first gallery? I don't have specific dates. Okay. See, that, that's where she varies from other artists I've covered. I, I don't have specifics on that. Right. I know years later, Maria remarked, quote, Many narrow-minded people think badly of the women of our days. They believe that because she works and incorporates herself into the rhythm of the city, she is morally inferior to the traditional woman whose domain was the kitchen and whose territory was limited by the door of the home. Mm. So at that point, that was 1950, and she was 48 when she made those remarks. Jesus. And, like, to be clear, Maria, she, like, had no beef with women who wanted that traditional life. She took issue with the systemic sexism that forced them into it. Correct. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. That's what she was calling out because she's Mm -hmm. like, if you want to do that and be a stay-at-home mom, she's like, that's great. Just Mm -hmm. you shouldn't have to do that. That's what she took issue with. Exactly. Yeah. So... Maria, she started her career by just one enrolling in art school. Wait, when was she born again? 1902.
1: I'm now, I'm now thinking of her in
0: like respect to my grandmother. I know you mentioned that your grandmother was still born like t- what, 20 years after her. Yeah. Yeah. So I
1: can, I'm imagining my grandmother's like traditions and values and how that could have surrounded Maria in a very negative light. Yeah. I can imagine it now.
0: (laughs) I mean, every culture has their own baggage, but... Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Something like a Catholic church does not help.
1: Nope. Not even close.
0: I mean, just organized religion in general. (laughs) Hmm. A a little problematic at times. Just be good because you're good and that's it.
1: That's it. That's all you need. Whatever.
0: (sighs) If, yeah, if only the world was that simple. (sighs) One person who is not good just to be good, was this guy who was the director of Maria's art school that she enrolled in, Mm. Diego Rivera. Oh, no. Yeah. He's like an art star with a little TM next to it. Fuck that guy. (laughs) Most people are probably familiar with him for either his mural artwork, he did some of that here in the States, or for being the husband of Frida Kahlo. To be fair, I don't know that much about him, but the impression I got through this research was... He likes to stir the pot just for the sake of it. Yeah, he's not a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, in 1929, when Maria was 27, Diego saw her work and remarked in front of everyone she was, quote, the only one of worth among the students. Um. That did not help her make friends. Oh. Wow. Like it all. Like, People, students, were literally throwing buckets of water on her. What? Yeah. I mean, Maria put it. She said, quote, it seems a crime to be a woman because if Diego had said that about a man, like, no big deal. But to call out a woman, like, she was essentially bullied out of school. That's so upsetting. Like, Diego backed her up. Like, with his support, Maria had exhibitions. She was introduced into, like, the art scene in Mexico City and then internationally as well, you know, the art markets of New York City and France. And out of all the leading Mexican women artists of this time, it was her and only one other woman who had, like, a formal art education who were professionally working. Right. So in this episode, it's a case of having
1: men who are dicks who are actually helping out people which is weird,
0: but who are still dicks at the end of the day because that totally makes a play in this one yeah yep okay we we got a lot a lot of parallels in this i almost wish i could be like oh we totally
1: planned this except for the widowed husband who was a very sweet man like he was he was a good guy
0: yeah i don't have an equivalent of him in this story sorry so close sorry everyone yeah instead i've just got diego who can be a bit of a butthole but that's a little later but for now, in terms of the art that Maria's doing, the the school that she went to, like, historically taught Western art. So basically, think of the art style shipped in from, like, Spain.
1: Mm, yeah.
0: Yeah, very traditional oil work. But after the revolution, there was a pushback against anything seen as encouraging the colonialism that Mexico had been under. Mm. Yeah, because in, like, the mid-1800s, like like, they fought New Spain for their own independence. Right. And then later on, like... America's like, hey, this chunk of Mexico, yeah, it's ours now. Because we're dicks, but let's just keep moving. <laughs> so, you know, Mexico was just, just not doing so great for a while. No. <laughs> like, come on, guys. Like, we just got rid of one. Now you're taking the rest of our shit. Like, so nationalism plays a big role in this just because there's such kind of like a shifting national identity. And at this period, after this revolution, kind of the main theme is just establishing mexico as itself as its own rich history its own rich culture and not living under the rule or influence of any other country yeah within art school they they were really quick to get rid of kind of western styles of art and emphasize kind of unique modern mexican artwork so what takes its place is this kind of stylized like looser style of working Mm -hmm. and maria totally works in this style. You know, in some cases, she, like, flattens her field of depth. Um, Her color use is bold. She doesn't really nitpick over detailing. In terms of color, she uses a lot of earth tones with accents of, like, blue, red, or yellow. And she's painting realistically. Like, it's stylized. But it's nothing, like, you know, terribly abstract or anything. And she's doing portraits. She's doing still lifes and landscapes. Maria was very deliberate in what she was painting, All of her work is loaded with symbolism. Okay. that's stemming from her own narratives. And that fact, like the fact that she's painting work inspired by her own experiences, sets her apart from the cool kid artists of the day and like those cool kids being men like her buddy Diego. So what,
1: I mean, their artists, if they weren't pulling from their own narrative, what narrative were they
0: pulling from? A national one, a national idealist
1: one. Oh, okay. One where, okay. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. So, not like, you know, how, um, what's the name? Like the American, like, painter who everybody knows, Rock.
0: Oh, Norman Rockwell.
1: Yeah. Like how they're like, like, that's nationalist and idealistic. And then,
0: yeah, I feel like that's a fair comparison. Usually, yeah. Okay. It's Diego along with these two other guys, David Sicarios and Jose Orzoco. O R O Z C O Orzoco. Orozco. Urzoco. Orozco? Oh, I can't roll my Rs. Orozco. I'm bringing up my Gringa card. That's a pass. <laughs> but Diego along with these two other guys, they were los tres grandes, the big three. <laughs> and just like you mentioned with. Norman Rockwell, they really wanted to tap in to this kind of universal national narrative. They weren't really so warm and cozy in terms of what they were depicting because Rockwell did a lot of, like, interior, domestic, feel-good, fuzzy family scenes. Yeah. But it's the same thing in terms of they were painting things of what people wanted to aspire to and what they felt as a nation people should be aspiring to. So, like... Well, they were cementing the dominant, like, aesthetics and narratives in, like, a post-revolutionary Mexico. Ah. And so working with the, the new democratic government, they were very prolific in creating public art, and in this case, murals. Gotcha. And they were creating these idealized scenes kind of celebrating the everyday person, kind of approaching things with a socialist attitude in terms of work and wealth. Because these were things that the revolutionaries were fighting for, and this is what they wanted to build this new republic of Mexico on. So it was a lot of more um, larger narratives that they were building in their artwork, rather than a personal experience.
1: There was an artist you did last season that was kicked out of the U.S., And she found her way to Mexico. Mm -hmm. I can't remember her name. Was that around this time? Because I know that she was a mural artist
0: as well. Yeah, Elizabeth Catlett. Her timeline is shifted a few years. I want to say about like 15, 20 years after uh, Maria's. Uh, But there's a lot that coincides because she did eventually permanently move to Mexico. And she was teaching in Mexico City. She headed their sculpture department.
1: Okay. All right. So there was some overlap.
0: Yeah. I think the timing was just a little off by about like a decade or so. Okay. They were kind of moving within the same creative circles. Gotcha. 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 So with Diego Rivera and these other artists, like they're really emphasizing Mexican dad. I'm mispronouncing that. I practice this. I swear. Mexicanidad. Mexicanidad. dad 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 Which is? That's the concept of the essence of being Mexican. Mm-hmm. And that's what these big three artists were encouraging on, you know, kind of the native Mexican people, you know, like I said, like a socialist attitude and work and wealth. And in their content, they really were shaping the national dialogue and art. Right. Like completely using murals as an opportunity to like reiterate to people, like what the people and what the government wanted to see in a post-revolution Mexico. Propaganda. Propaganda. In in a way. Yeah. And it actually becomes more propaganda in the 1940s because by then the government had completely strayed from their initial attempt.
1: Uh, But
0: then it was weirdly like these three artists were still really working with the government and they were still like espouting these ideas, even though at that point they weren't really true anymore.
1: Because money.
0: Yeah. I mean, things just shifted. Yeah. But within this dialogue, like Maria got shut out of it like her personal narratives they were not overtly political and that put her at odds with the defining nationalism of the grand three right
1: because that's what they wanted to see versus what she had to i guess give
0: well yeah and they were such big artists they were really driving what was popular Mm -hmm. yeah and so because her work didn't fit in with that then it wasn't it wasn't popular and like Just as Diego had previously been very instrumental in encouraging Maria's art, he later was really impactful in dismissing it. Of course he was. Yeah. So things are about to get a a little shitty. I would punch him straight in the face, but okay. So in Maria's paintings, she's approaching her work from a feminine narrative. Mm. Right? Yeah. Like, makes sense. Uh, It's often women she's depicting in her portraits. You know, the Virgin Mary iconography comes up. She did a series of still lives of home altars. Mm. So these, like, altars that are traditionally designed and upkept by women. Right. And Maria also did a series of landscapes. And those feature fairly, like, desolate settings. But in the foreground, they're loaded with really rich foods, you know, fish and fruit and wine. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot you can interpret from these things beyond just initially looking at them and going, oh, that's a nice painting. Yeah. And the fact that she's painting from her own experiences outwards, you know, as opposed to conceiving of these grand narratives, like, Mm -hmm. you know, with Diego Rivera's. Like, that's why the historian that I quoted earlier praised Maria for embodying Mexican identity or Mexicanidad.
1: Because she was actually representing what people were dealing with and being Mexican versus what people wanted to be.
0: Yeah, instead of, like, some idealized idea of what people were. Mm -hmm. Because, like... Like, the truth. Yeah, like, on her ground-level experience, she was painting what she was actually experiencing, what was actually going on. It was more of, like, a one-to-one relationship. Whereas, like, Diego, he is making these giant murals about the working class when, guess what, he's, like, not even the working class. No. Yeah, like, he's a complete outsider kind of crafting these... In some ways, you could probably argue, like, contrived narratives of what things should be versus what they actually are. How you should feel. Yeah. So, yeah. So, like, Maria just tapped into a much more personal narrative. Right. And in the 1940s, like, things were going good for her. Uh, In 1945, Maria's 43, and she was commissioned by the government to paint a large public mural in Mexico City. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So Maria was awarded the commission plans were made everything was ready to go and then diego and david ziqueiros were like hold the fuck up we veto this what the fuck why they said she was young she was inexperienced and she was a she that was it those maria couldn't possibly do a mural like that those were the three things yeah and she she didn't do the mural like, Diego and David, they held that level of influence that they were able to pull the project from under her. Mainly, the big thing they took issue with was the fact that her design featured allegorical women as embodying the nation. Mm. And that did not fit the script of men leading the way and women acting as supporting roles. No, nope. Yeah. And Maria, in some of her previous work, she was calling out sexism, you know, incorporating allegorical narratives in her paintings. Fuck like your machismo oh, yeah, yeah pretty much actually there's yeah. one in 1936 where she depicts women in chains I, I mean it's titled women in jail so i mean you could straightforward look at it and you're like oh they're just women in jail or like oh no we can examine you know zoom out a bit examine the societal roles that women play within the society mm-hmm. so that that's the type of symbolism and layering that exists within maria's paintings right And she applied that same application to this mural design, too. Because one big aspect of Maria was like, yeah, I might be a woman, but women are just as capable as men. And we can contribute and we can build on Mexican identity just as well as you guys. For sure. Yeah. Did she ever get a mural? No, but that wasn't necessarily what her art style was. Yeah, I think it was just a really great opportunity that came along, and it was really Mm -hmm. crushing when it was taken away from her. Even though mural art wasn't her style, it was still really hard on Maria when that didn't happen, and it was hard in her career. Kind of the irony of it is just a few years before landing the commission, Maria was quoted as saying, Almost never do male artists see women who paint as just another colleague who is dedicated as they are to the same creative labor. No, on the contrary, they see in her an obstacle an inferior competitor with whom they must venomously attack. Yeah,
1: that's really on par with most women who are talented and successful.
0: Well, I mean, it's just anyone who's in a position of power. Like, Mm -hmm. equality for everyone doesn't mean loss for you. Also, like, just, I'm going to put it out there, Spanish men tend to be really fragile. Oh, well, and especially within this... (laughs) point in history the gender roles yeah while everyone's trying to be like oh you know we've it's a revolutionary mexico everything's different now i mean yeah like, oh, how much is uh-huh. different when it comes to gender roles yeah and these gender roles expectations are i mean they're prevalent in every society yeah that's true it's there's there's always going to be a manifestation of that for sure so the commission being taken away from maria she was not quiet about it Right. Like, there was public debate back and forth between her and them. And she was further criticized for even criticizing them. Really? For calling them out on their shit? Because they were just such big hotshots And they were just so influential, not only within the art scene, but they were so closely tied, you know, with the government, too, that they were the art stars of the day. It's like in the last episode, where your psychologist had completely different ideas compared to Sigmund Freud. Yeah. That didn't really make her that many friends when she said it. So it's the same case in this instance. Gotcha. It was a difficult time for Maria. One support system she did have in place was her second husband. Maria had remarried in 1943 to a Chilean painter. Was he nice? I... They had a messy breakup. Damn it. Yeah. So after, like, 1945, it was described that Maria, quote began to experience nightmares that left her sleepless. One day she arose and drew what she remembered, a clear version of herself in a window of metaphysical dimension, holding her own decapitated head as her body, still walking, becomes lost in the distance of steps, leading to a void.
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah, a
0: little fucking heavy. She, she need a friend, a hug, a therapist? And I, I think her marriage during that time was really rocky, too, oh man that particular dream she turned into the 1970 1947 painting titled dreams and premonition it it was considered her last great work and was kind of a weird premonition because a year later in 1948 maria's 46 she had an embolism that left her partially paralyzed oh my god she had to learn to paint like with her left hand her non-dominant hand oh my god she did keep painting but even she acknowledged that what she was making just just wasn't quite the same as what she was doing previously because it was just a whole another set of challenges in terms of making the work oh my god so like it's ironic that like in the painting you know her body is physically separated from her head from her intellect and then a year later she's her body's physically cut off from her and what she's capable of doing yeah yeah and then on top of that her and her husband divorced I think it was a very messy breakup some accounts said that he pretty much took all the money that they had what she was in poverty oh no and then two years later she had a stroke and she passed away oh no Maria she was only 53 yeah that was in 1955 so, really, the last 10 years of her life, it was just like a domino effect. Just shit. Just complete shit. Yeah. But, I mean, things were going really well for her professionally in the, the 30s and 40s. And then she had that massive public rebuke on her creative credibility. And she was like… Everything. Yeah. yeah. Like, she, she lost money. You know, one person wrote that it like, broke her heart. It just… She never bounced back from it. But, I mean, even though towards the end of her life she was struggling, Maria's work has since gained recognition, which is pretty great. Yeah. So, in 2002, Mexico City's National Commission for the Arts and Culture declared Maria an artistic monument of the nation, and that ensures that her work is, has proper preservation and it, there's public education about her and her art.
1: Good. Good. Because, like, I'm looking at her work right now, so it's pretty good. It's got like a fun, well, not fun, like just what you were saying earlier. The perspectives are played with and super stylized.
0: I think kind of like moody. Yeah. I one thing that's kind of fun is that a lot of the f- the women painted have almost like this resting bitch face. Like they're just so like, oh my god, I'm like, so t- I'm so over this.
1: I'm so like no nobody's smiling. No one is smiling.
0: Yeah, which is kind of nice because I'm just.
1: You're so used to women smiling in paintings,
0: right? We're so used to women smiling in paintings that men paint. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, refreshing. You're like, oh, look, it's, like, a woman who's kind of neutral, or maybe she's a little grumpy, or, like, maybe just lost in thought, like. Maybe she's just hangry. Yeah, it's not like yeah. this whole, I have to be nice, I have to be cute, I have to be pretty, like, no. I think that accolade from the Mexico City's commission, she would have really enjoyed because... For Maria, she considered that, quote, as a painter and as a woman, I have only one purpose, to give to my people, whom I love sincerely. Mm. Yeah, and so Aww. she did that. And I think that type of... Proud to be Mexican. Yeah, and just depicting her experience for, for what it is, her own applied social commentary. And I She was just honest. Yeah, these are like diary entries. Oh, like little shots, little
1: snapshots of her life, the early ones at least.
0: Yeah, I know that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. But like you said, like that that type of honesty, I think, is why historians have really pointed her out in terms of rivaling Frida Kahlo in terms of her expression of being Mexican within that time period. Another theme she did like to touch on was the circus. So mm-hmm. she depicted yeah. that in a yeah. few, and horses she really enjoyed. So she worked that into a few of her paintings. They're really
1: cool. I'm really digging it.
0: There's only one mention of this, so that's why I didn't work it in because I, like, couldn't verify it. But apparently when she was two years old, she was kidnapped by the circus for a day. Um, what? Yeah, that's it. That was, like, the mention. And there was, like... There was no background. No other sources mentioned it because they were like, she painted the circus a lot. They just picked up an extra kid? Oh, by the way, she was kidnapped when she was a toddler by a traveling oh circus.
1: God. Oh my God, that's hilarious, but also scary.
0: And also, I can't verify it, so I have no idea if it's true or not. That's crazy. So, that is Maria Izquierdo. I haven't mispronounced anything in Spanish. Lo siento, soy Americana. Mi español es muy mal. Muy, muy mal.
1: We love you anyway.
0: (laughs) Again, lo siento. Soy gringa.
1: Soy una gringa.
0: Soy una gringa. Gracias, Milena. You're welcome. Yeah, we've just got the warm and fuzzies all the way around on this episode. All fucking day. But, I mean, I think we're still doing better than our current political and social settings right here in the United States. So, you know what? Why the fuck not?
1: i just want to crawl up in a ball and die
0: well if you hold out long enough that might happen depending on the next regime great hopefully it's an administration and not a regime but we'll see tbd (laughs) oh no everyone if you're not already registered to vote for the love of god vote go register some states like my home state right now early voting has already begun Um, if you're not American
1: and you have American friends, get on their ass to vote. Please, please, please. please.
0: (sighs) So, as always, if you've made it this far, we super appreciate it. You guys are really awesome. And Milana, if people want to see more about the people that we've covered, where can they go to find out more? So we have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com.
1: Our Facebook and Instagram are myfavoritefeminist. Our Twitter is... At Milena Megan. That's at M I L E N A M E G A N. If you want to email us, it's info at myfavoritefeminists.com. You can listen to us wherever podcasts are streamed, and it takes two seconds to please rate, subscribe, like, share, all that good stuff. And in the comment section below, you can just let us know what you've been doing to get past this crazy political dread that we're in.
0: Megan, cookie dough. Really? What? Don't you ever get a little stressed? And you're like, I'm stressed. I need something to make me not stressed. You know what helps? Chocolate chip cookie dough. I haven't had chocolate chip cookie dough in a, while, a very long time. I make a big batch, I portion it out, I freeze it, bag it up, and then instead of just pulling it out and baking it, I just eat my little portions one by one. Had half a dozen the other day. I'm not proud of myself. But did it help? And was it delicious? It was. <laughs> does it make things better no no but while i'm eating a cookie it does i've just been working my
1: ass off just putting my head in my computer and not looking at the world around me although i will say pole has been really helpful because i there was one moment where i was like shaking and i like stopped doing what i was doing moved the furniture and started pole dancing and like by the time i was done i was calm so
0: that's what i'm doing Gotta physically work it out sometimes. Yeah. Our country is like literally and metaphorically on fire right now. (laughs) Fun times. Fun times. This is fine. (laughs) Everything's fine. Ah, All right. Well, until next time, guys, we'll see you then. Antonio, seeing us out.
1: Adios, mis amigos. Hasta el próximo episodio. The president is a pig, and I would know. I'm a pig, but I'm better than him. Antonio, stained
0: glass lamp for president 2020. <laughs> <laughs> this ad was approved by my favorite feminist podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Under it, by Megan and Milena. I'm fucking dead. We need to go now.